Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. We're going to look at the book of Daniel. We're going to look at an episode from, from the life of, of an exile, of a, a young Jewish dude in exile in a foreign country, in a foreign land. And the book of Daniel is written, is written about and it's written to a people that are living in a foreign land, that are living under foreign domination. And they're living in a culture that's at times very, very hostile to their faith, to their very existence as a distinct people. It's about a people and to a people who had suffered the trauma of exile. And that's something very few of us can can sympathize with and appreciate. The story that, that the book of Daniel tells is largely about living life in exile. It, it faces some of the questions that these exiles were asking, some of the dilemmas that they were facing, and some of the problems that they were trying to deal with, the things that they were confronting on a day, daily basis. This is what the book of Daniel addresses and tries to, tries to find answers for. Some questions like, can I be faithful in a foreign land? Can we be a faithful people? Can we be faithful Jews in Babylon? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And another, another dilemma that it confronts is, is how. How can we do that? How can we be God's covenant people in a foreign land, in a pagan land? That answer is not so straightforward. It's not an easy yes or no. It's, it's a situation that's, that's under negotiation. And on top of those issues, Daniel also answers the question, is this the end? Is this the destiny of God's people? Is this the end of the story? Is us living in Babylon? Is there any cause for hope? And the answer to that is yes, there is. The church, we have a lot to learn from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like a treasure chest that's often very, very neglected in the church. Because the Old Testament is, in part, it's a story of a people who are in this ongoing conflict about how do we deal with the surrounding culture? How do we relate to the cultural environment that, that we find ourselves embedded in? And the stories and the episodes and the, the books in the Old Testament, they range across a great spectrum of experience. And part of that story is our story. Because through Christ, we are, we are grafted in to a, a very lengthy and a very ancient family tree. 
And the Old Testament is part of our family history. It's part of our inheritance in Christ. And so the book of Daniel is not just about, it's not just about some stuff that happened to some Jewish exiles way back when. The book of Daniel is, is God's wisdom, his counsel, his admonition to his people today and ongoing. The book of Daniel might, it might not have been addressed to us, but it's written down and it's handed down for us and for our benefit. Do you think that the church could stand to gain some wisdom about how to live in the midst of a culture that we find ourselves in? So let's read together. And I'm going to ask you, like I always do, I'm going to ask you to stand with me when we read. And some of y'all think, what's the point? Stand, sit, stand, sit, whatever. It's largely symbolic. It is. And I'll, I'll explain that to you. If you come to my house and I don't stand up to greet you, it's because you're not really welcome. I'm not making an effort to welcome you. Okay? So this is an act of hospitality. It's the confession of the church to say to God, your word is honored here, and we welcome you in our midst to speak to us. Okay, so let's read from the book of Daniel. Read in chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called... Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Lord, strengthen us, your church, your people, according to your word, by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, thank you. So Daniel gives us 
a picture and an example of being engaged with the surrounding culture and at the same time remaining distinct. God shows us and describes for us how Daniel and his, his kinsmen, his countrymen, how they, they try to navigate wisely between two very real and two very attractive dangers. And these two dangers are tribalism and assimilation. And, and God portrays this in a way that, that we can learn and we can glean from their experience. So we got Daniel and these other young Jewish exiles in Babylon, right? And if you listen to a lot of reggae music, you pronounce it differently. So they're living in Babylon, and they're living in exile. And they're not there because they wanted to go on a trip, okay? The king of Babylon, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he, he besieges the city, which is meant to, to starve everybody out, to cut off all lines of supply, any, any help that they might receive. And it says that the Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. And there's a long backstory to that, and we, just, we don't really have a lot of time to go into it today. But essentially, they find themselves in exile. And some of these exiles, some of these young, promising youth, are they're living under the king's patronage. They're learning the language and the literature of the Babylonians, or as they call it, the Chaldeans. And um, that's to say they're... they're they're in a program of, of cultural immersion. They're even able to take Babylonian names. And they're fully engaged in this, this foreign culture. And yet, there's some boundaries that they, they can't cross. There's some parts of Babylonian culture that they can't celebrate. There's some laws that they can't obey. And as the book plays out, we see these, these Jewish exiles, they're trying to work this, this dual strategy of engagement and resistance. They're being fully present in the nation where they find themselves while still maintaining and fostering an identity as a distinct people. They're trying as, as best as they know how to be a blessing where they are without ever denying or being unfaithful to who they are. Are you all with me? That makes sense? I think there's something that we can, we can stand to hear too, listening to, uh, listening to the Spirit speak through His Word. This is something that the church is, is always, always needing wisdom and discernment for. There are two, two temptations that Daniel and the people in exile they faced. And the same temptations that always threaten the integrity and the witness of the church, tribalism and assimilation. And I'll break them down just, just quickly. Tribalism is a temptation to remain absolutely distinct. And not just distinct, but withdrawn, insular, cut off, and unengaged. Think, 
Amish. Think like ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. Groups that are essentially closed to outsiders. And it's not that there's just boundary markers that mark the inside and the outside of a community. It's not just we have beliefs about what's appropriate for the community and what's not. There's a difference. These aren't boundary markers. These are walls. These are barricades meant to keep people out, to keep the outside world out, and to keep people in, and that there would be no traffic, no commerce between the two lines. There's a difference. And here the emphasis is on exclusion, the prevention of outside influence. And you gotta, you got to have a little sympathy to understand that this was a real temptation for exiles. Because you put yourself in their shoes and you think what they were, what's going through your head? What thoughts are dominating the dialogue of your heart? You're living in a land that you didn't want to come to. And you look and you say, these, these pagans, they, they violated our people. They desecrated our homeland. They, they blaspheme our God. These are our oppressors, our captors, and therefore we have nothing to do with them. I don't, want to, I don't want to know about their thinking. I don't want to know about their way of life. We turn our backs. We circle the wagons, and we wait until the judgment of God because we have no responsibility or obligation to them. That's the way that we're going to stay true to who God has called us to be. That's one temptation. That's one strategy for staying true to who God called you to be, except that it's not. It's not entirely. It's true that through Abraham, right, who we talked about two weeks ago, through Abraham, God called a people out of their homeland, out of their indigenous culture, out of their former identity, but it's not just a calling out. Talked about the, Tim talked about this last week with, with the Exodus. God calls a people not just out, but he's sending them somewhere. Being called out is also, it's a, it's a command and it's a summons to go. It's not just a call to leave something behind. It's also being sent someplace. The call to let things from the past go is also a call to embrace something new. That's what it means when God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing to others. That's what it means when God calls his people to be a light to the nations. That call, that summons to be a light, to be a blessing, to be a witness, that doesn't change given your circumstances. That applies and that remains in effect whether you find yourself in the dominant culture, in the mainstream, or whether you're in the minority and on the margins. The call and the vocation and the mission stay the same for God's people, whether they're in their own land 
whether they're politically empowered or whether they're living in a foreign land and they're disenfranchised. Whether they're living as, as natives or foreigners and exiles. The call, the mission, the vocation, those stay the same. And so we see, we see Daniel using his gifts, using what God has given him. In chapter 1, 3 and 4, it says, The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Daniel's using his position and his influence. He's not withdrawn. He's not cut off. In chapter 2, you get the scene playing out where the king of Babylon, who's a tyrant, who's insane and egotistical and makes any of our, our current candidates look like models of self-control. He is fed up with all of his advisors and with all his, his, his kind of cabinet member counselors. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to have them all murdered. And Daniel, he's advocating and he's, he's asking for an audience with the king. And in, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says this, He said he went back to his, his friends, he went back to his, his kinsmen, and he said, he told them to seek mercy from, God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel is using the gifts and the wisdom that God has given him not just to save his own skin, not just to save his own people, but to save a bunch of Babylonians and their families, a bunch of pagan magicians and wise men. And as the book goes on, you see Daniel kind of rising in the ranks, rising in prestige and prominence. He's serving and advising rulers and kings. He's holding office in the nations that he finds himself in, and he's actively working and laboring for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Didn't that strike you as a little bit strange? The nation of his captors, the nation that's holding his people hostage, he's working for the peace and prosperity. So God's call and vocation for his people to be a blessing wherever they are, wherever they find themselves, Wherever God places them, it helps them to resist the temptation to turn your backs, to withdraw, to cut yourselves off. It keeps them from succumbing to tribalism. But, but, there's a but. That call to serve and to be a blessing and to seek the common good of the land of their captors is not always positive is not just a call to learn and to dialogue and cooperate 
Sometimes it's also a call to resist. In chapter 3, we see, uh, we see these exiles. And we see them refusing to participate in a very, very public civil and religious festival. They publicly disobey the command of the king, even at the peril of their own life. They have, they've got everyone in Babylon gathered together, right? The who's who, they're all there. And, and all the people, and they got music, and it's a spectacle, right? It's a rocking concert in Babylon. And, and these exiles, they're, everyone's supposed to bow down to this, this golden image that the king has erected. And I don't know if it's a god or an image of the king. It doesn't matter, right? This is about honoring the king. And to disobey is to dishonor and to cause a scandal. And in chapter 3, they, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Right? Because he threatens them. He says, if you don't obey me, I will throw your blankety-blank into the fire pit. He said, we have no need to answer you. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We can't do it. We can't do it, king, whose, whose patronage we live under. O king, whose buildings we live in, who, whose food provides for us whose land we are guests in, O king, we can't do it. We can't do it. No matter what you threaten us with, we won't. Right? The dilemma of these exiles is not just about how do we learn and how do we cooperate and how, you know, how do we bear effective witness. It's also sometimes how do we resist. And this is not just, this is not just a matter of my personal conscience. This violates my conscience. This is a violation of the law of God. The commandments given out on Sinai that say, you don't have any other gods. None. The relationship between God and his people is exclusive. In chapter 6, Daniel is faced with a real clear decision that either he has to deny his identity as a Jew as one of God's covenant people, or put his life at risk to stay faithful rather than remain in the good graces of the king. So in chapter 6, Daniel's in a different, a different nation, in Persia, actually. And he says this. He says, Therefore Darius signed the document an injunction. It was an injunction banning prayer to anyone except Darius himself anyone except the king of Persia. He signed this injunction, and when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, right, he knew about it, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He goes to his room, 
and the windows are open, and he doesn't close them. He doesn't keep it a secret. He doesn't hide, right? This is not, look at me, I'm a good person, look at me praying. Daniel's, he's an elite. He's got privilege. He's got clout that a lot of other exiles don't have. He puts his neck on the line and says, I can't do it. I can't go along with what you're asking me. And he just, he does what he's always done. So God's call and commission to his people, wherever they may be, is not just to serve and engage with and learn from the culture where they are, but it's also to resist, to stay distinct, to stay faithfully different, not to be cut off and separated from, but to be set apart, to be holy, along with the call to engage and to serve and to seek the blessing of where you are, God calls us to be distinct. At times, noticeably different. To be set apart. And that keeps us from falling into the other temptation. And that's the temptation to assimilate. The temptation, right, is not only to engage with the surrounding culture, but to do so in a way that, that, that one becomes indistinguishable from it. Does that make sense? To do so in a way that, that the, the emphasis is not on exclusion, but it's about embrace. It's not on being distinct. It's about conformity. That's the uncritical adoption about anything and everything in the culture that, where we find ourselves and the abandonment of anything that makes us stand out, anything that marks us off as different. And if, on the one hand, right, on the one hand, you run the risk of being unengaged with the surrounding culture, the other, the other hand, you run the risk of being captive to it, right? God calls his people to be engaged with the culture where they are, but not married to it. Does that, does that make sense? And so I want to look, I want to just slow down and look for a minute at chapter one, because that strikes me as the, the strangest thing, so that Daniel, right, chapter 1, Daniel and his, 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 his countrymen, right, his fellows, they're in Babylon, and they have no objection to learning the culture, learning the literature, learning the language, learning about the culture where they're at. They have no objection to serving the king, right? The whole point of their, their education is to stand in the king's court and advise him. They have no objection to that. They have no objection to taking on Babylonian names. And I think what strikes me is so strange that the thing that they draw the line in, the thing that where they draw the line and say, we can't do this, is food and drink. Food and drink. In uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Of all the things that the exiles could be worried about, of all the things that they thought might defile them, or poison them, or cause them to be unfaithful to their identity as God's people, 
food and drink. It's ironic that the, thing, the first thing they have to resist is not something that's like outright morally repugnant to them. It's not a gross violation of their conscience. What they're challenged to resist is actually something that's attractive and enticing and appealing. Faithful resistance is not always a matter of blatant injustice. Sometimes it's, it's to resist what's tempting. I mean, you wouldn't have to tell someone to resist temptation if it wasn't actually tempting. It wasn't actually enticing and appealing. And think about how strange this is. You know, like we eat meat, most of us, we eat meat every day, if not twice or three times a day. This is a culture where the majority of people would be lucky to eat once a day. And there's no refrigeration, right? There's no freezer section at Woodman's, right? You, you kill an animal, you have to eat it that day. Most of these people would eat meat rarely. And so for Daniel to refuse this food, food from the king's table, the king's table, it is like the, the highest, finest cuisine in the entire empire. And Daniel and his, his homeboys are like, we don't want to defile ourselves. Think about how strange that looked. How, how odd and peculiar that these men would, would turn down the finest food over what? You're going to defile yourself? And there's, right, that must have appeared nuts, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Have you guys ever accidentally opened your Bible to, like, Leviticus, and you wondered, what's the deal? Why can't, why can't, why does God make such a big deal about food? What foods are clean and what foods are unclean? No? Is that just me, me and Sally? And Chris? So, here's the deal. I'm not going to bore you and put you um, all the way to sleep with a lecture about, you know, the theology of clean and unclean food. I'm just going to read you a section from the book of Leviticus. A short section, all right? Sigh of relief. So, chapter 20 in the book of Leviticus, in the Torah, in this foundational kind of document, it's like a constitution and national history and bill of rights and civil code and all of it rolled into one for the people of Israel, right? And, and you have this chapter 20 where it's all about, hey, the people next to you, they burn their children at the altar. Don't do that. They engage in all sorts of wicked practices. Don't do that. And tacked on at the end is, is this part in verse 24. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the clean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. 
for I am the for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So you get all these moral injunctions, all this, you know, here's what you can't engage in if you're going to be my people. And then at the end, you get this little tack on. Don't eat this food. Distinguish between clean and unclean. Separate these two because I have separated you from the nations and you are to be set apart to the Lord. You're holy and you belong to the Lord. These exiles didn't care about the health risks. They weren't concerned about watching their figure, right? This is not about the Daniel plan, which is like marketed as some, as some diet regimen. This is symbolic. It's symbolic. It's about being a distinct people. It's about their identity. The fact that these exiles were in a foreign land, it didn't invalidate the fact that the Lord is not just the God of Israel. He's not bound to some territorial strip in the Middle East, but he's the God of heaven and earth and of all nations. And it's odd. It's strange. But Daniel's not willing to trade faithfulness for respectability. So for the exiles, as much as they want to serve and learn and engage... They can never be fully Babylonian. They're always going to be exiles living in Babylon. They can never be fully at home in this land. No matter where they go, they're always going to remain distinct. They're always going to be a peculiar people. In the church, we need to hear that. We need to hear that word. Brothers and sisters, we need to own that. We need to be unashamed. Unashamed. To be unashamed that that God calls us to be a distinct and peculiar people among the nations, it means not letting surrounding cultural pressure dictate what we can and cannot believe, what we can and cannot practice, what we can and cannot hold fast to, whether that culture is ancient Babylon or postmodern America or anything in between. You got that, you got that graphic? Can y'all, I'm going to actually, can someone hit the lights for me real quick, Susie or Michael? Thank you. Has anyone seen this before? You have. Good. Yeah. You know what it's called? What is this? It's graffiti. This, can you go to the next one that's more clear? People will sometimes, you'll hear this, this kind of defense like, come on, man. We're modern people. We can't believe in this nonsense anymore. I want to tell you that there has never, ever been an age in which the cross is not a scandal. This is the earliest known depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. This was found in Rome. They think it's from the second century. It is a, um, that is a man bowing down. The caption reads, Alexa Menos Sebede Theon, which means 
Alexamenos worships his God. If you can't tell, that's a man on a cross with the head of an ass. That was found in the soldiers' barracks. That is locker room graffiti from the second century. Y'all can hit the lights. We need to own it. We do not live in a unique time. There has never been a time where the gospel was not a scandal. There's never been a time where the, where the message of the cross is not a stumbling block. Where the saving message of a crucified Jew is not seen as foolishness. There's always pressure. Sometimes it's overt, and sometimes it's very subtle. But there's always pressure to make the Christian faith and our practice rest easily within the boundaries set by the dominant culture. And it's just, it's not meant to. It's not meant to. The only way that the message of salvation is good news is if it's addressed to a people who are lost and alienated from God and under condemnation. The gospel will never be completely palatable to a lost and sinful world because it's not meant to be. The Marines, I think they have like a little phrase that they say. It's called embrace the suck. It means situations messed up and you can't do anything about it. You just have to just own up to it. And I, I don't know like when it happened, but there was a, a, there was a, a shift in my faith, right? Because I came to faith and I was like a little skeptical and I'm reading books and I'm trying to get respectable and, you know, make historical arguments and like, you know, they had this whole push, like apologetics and having a reasonable faith. And somewhere along the line, I just lost it. I lost it and I realized it's not respectable. Mary, a pregnant virgin, is not respectable. A crucified Jew as the savior of the world, it's not respectable. It's not reasonable. It's completely unreasonable. And that's fine. I just lost all shame. And it's, I have no intention of being ashamed of Christ because Christ is not ashamed to call me beloved. He's not ashamed of us to call us his people. So I've lost all shame and embarrassment. And with that, with that, there's something else that, that stuck out to me in chapter 1. Right? With that call to be bold and to have conviction and to be unashamed, there's something else that, that stood out to me that I think we all need to bear in mind. And that's Daniel's tone, right? When he sees a line that he can't cross, when he sees something that's in conflict with his, his identity, listen to how he makes his appeal. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He asked. He made a request. He was like, oh, you wicked pagan. He wasn't shrill, but he was gracious. Starts from a place 
of graciousness. This is a respectful request of the king's servant. It's not a harsh condemnation and rebuke of the king. That comes later. It does. It comes later in the book of Daniel. But the default tone of Daniel is graciousness. I want to point this out. That to be distinct is not the opposite of being humble. Right? To have strong conviction doesn't mean you have to be an imbecile. The two are not mutually exclusive. I think the church, they can, we, we have a lot to learn from Daniel's boldness, from his conviction and his courage, his commitment. But I think the one thing that we need to hold on to whenever possible is a tone of graciousness. I'm all for clarity. I'm all for not, like, I am not, I do not want to hand over anything according to whatever, cultural pressure or embarrassment. But that doesn't mean we, we let go of graciousness and humility, all right? The two don't, they don't, they don't have to be opposite. So what do we do with all this? How can we learn from Daniel, from the exiles, how to be in a culture without becoming captive to it? How do we simultaneously engage with the culture and resist it? Some of these questions you, you, you raise, and, and I don't have all the answers for, but they are questions that we need to be asking ourselves and dealing with. I think mean, one thing that happens is... Um, Young men like Daniel and, and the people that are, are formed that go into exile and can bear these, bear these trials and can navigate wisely, that don't happen by accident, right? Daniel understands that when you engage with the culture, that culture engages you right back. You might go out and say, I'm going to change the world. It's very likely the world's going to change you. It's very possible. Daniel, he's learning. He's opening himself up. He's taking in from where he's at. But, like, he's not being indoctrinated because that happened earlier. That happened at home. Daniel's been trained up in the faith. Daniel's, he's got faith of consequence. I get a little nervous, and, and you know, it's not, like, this is just my suspicion. There's a guy, Christian Smith, and I can't, he's like a sociologist, and he did, like, this long, like, 10-year, 15-year study of, uh, study of, of young people in religion, and he found, like, the great majority of these young people, and this is America, this is our context, the great majority of people, young people in America, they have a good opinion of religion in general, but they see it as having no consequence, right? This is the Jesus is my homeboy type of faith. He's not. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. Daniel has a faith of consequence and conviction, and that doesn't happen by accident. And I'm not, I don't want to come across like I'm saying, 
none of y'all aren't good enough, or we're not good enough, or we're, we're dropping the ball. But we just need to be aware that to, to nurture these convictions is, takes energy, takes effort, takes pouring into and training. It takes a whole community to come around and do that. Personal story. I sat down with my kids the other night, and we've been, I've been trying to institute like prayer and scripture in a way that's not weird and that doesn't embitter them, you know? Now, like, everyone sit still, be quiet right now. And we opened up the catechism, which is just like some basic question and answer. And I asked them, what's the gospel? First question on the catechism, what is the gospel? And they're like, um, the Bible? These are my kids, right? The kid, the guy that reads all these books is not transmitting down, apparently. And it just made me, you know, understand that, like, I'm going to have to put some effort in to try and build a framework, you know? And if they walk away from that, at least they know what they're walking away from, you know? The whole idea that, you know, Jesus just wants to be your friend, that's not, that's not quite true. God loves and God reconciles and God's forgiving, but man, there's more to it. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints, right? And we just want to, I feel like there's a tendency to just kind of diminish, right, and go for the lowest common denominator. We need to open that wide up and just own it. It's ours. It's given to us. And part of the help is that to, to, to foster these convictions is seeing ourselves as part of a larger community, which is kind of what we're doing right now. When we're looking back at our family history in the scriptures, and we're seeing it as just that, this is our family history. We're not the first ones to face these dilemmas, to try to unpack these problems. And to the scriptures... Right? I want to make an appeal that we add, don't jump on me, right? Catholic tradition. Not big C Roman Catholic. I mean Catholic like universal. That we understand that we are not the first generation of Christians and that the church is, is older than our generation and it's much wider than our immediate contexts. And we have a large family that we can glean from. That we can glean from a dude like, like St. Augustine, who's, um, I believe, in the 5th century. And he's looking at the empire that he lives in, and there's invading armies on the border. And he has to deal with this, right? The whole empire is converted to Christianity, whatever that means, for good or for bad. And he has to face the fact that the, the empire that he lives in is crumbling. How do, you, how do you reconcile faith in the kingdom of God while you're living in a nation, in an empire that's, that's going to be overrun by an invading army? We've got a lot to learn from our family history. You read a dude like Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass... Was, was a slave that was taught to read. 
He escaped, he gained his freedom, and he spent his life um, speaking and writing and advocating for the abolition of slavery. And we see him in his, his autobiography. The narrative life of Fred, Frederick Douglass is very short. It's an easy read. And he is struggling to reconcile the fact, he's like, why is it that slave owners who are apparently Christian are the most brutal of all? If I got a, a slave owner that's a, a, a drunken, wicked pagan, he's a lot more kind to me than the people who think it's a matter of principle to, to, to beat their slaves. And we see him, he's trying to reconcile this, and he's struggling. And all he can do is he, can, he looks into the scriptures, and he says, will not God visit the sins of this generation on them? Will not God's righteous judgment come on these people? We, gotta, we can learn from that. We can learn from a dude like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's looking at his nation. And, and the, the church where he is serving is like completely in bed with Nazi ideology. And he doesn't know, should I leave? Should I escape? Should I save my own skin? Or do I go back and offer what resistance I can? There's a lot of people, there's a, a long history of our family trying to work this out. And it's just, we impoverish ourselves when we, when we stay stuck in like, well, this book came out yesterday, and this book came out a month ago, and, and this, this blogger over here said this, and this radio talk show said this. It's like tunnel vision. Open up the spectrum more, right? And we have a faith that's been passed on and believed and, and, and held to not just across cultural boundaries, not just across um, language barriers, not just across social lo locations, but across centuries. Okay, I gotta start winding down. How do we resist the temptation to assimilate and just be like everyone else? We talked about conviction. We talked about the importance of community in, in a local, in a large sense. And then part of the way we do that is we, we, we practice. We're distinct people. We're set apart. And we're peculiar, we're peculiar, peculiar in what we do. Right? We have a distinct song that we sing. We have a distinct confession that we make. And we come together. We are gathered together to be reconstituted and renewed and recaptivated by a peculiar story. Right? Week in and week out. It takes practice. The Spirit gathers us together. There's a song that we sing that... I guess Emma actually criticized it last week, so I'm just following in her footsteps. We sing it, we say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And I think it's a fine song. I like the melody. But the content bugs me a little bit because I actually believe it's the exact opposite. It's that the Holy Spirit says to us, you are welcome here. He gathers us. 
The Holy Spirit welcomes us and renews us in our worship, in our singing, in our giving, in our prayers, in our being recaptivated by His story. Gives us new hope for His coming kingdom that's coming that will outlast the rise and fall of tyrant kings and nation states. So the Spirit gathers us together. The Lord gathers us, welcomes us, and he sends us out. But before the Lord sent out his disciples to proclaim and to bear witness to his coming kingdom, first, he called them to himself to come to him, to abide in him, to be renewed by his love and his teaching. And he called them to to share a meal with him. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the posture of a servant. He stripped down, he took a towel, and he started to wash the feet of his disciples. He washed them. And they objected. They said, we don't want, no, you can't do this. It's it's not right. He said, "Unless, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Jesus humbles himself to be a servant, and he washes his disciples. And that Not just that, but he also takes the posture of a servant and he serves them a meal, a meal of thanksgiving, a meal where he says, this is my body, my blood. I'm pouring myself out to you. I'm going to make the jump that that these, these acts of Jesus are ongoing, that in the washing of his disciples, we carry that on in baptism. And in the meal that he served to his disciples, we carry that on in in the Lord's Supper. This is not just a reenactment of the gospel. This is the gospel made manifest to us. He offers his life to us. And he pours out his, in his death, he, he pours out his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. This is one of the ways that God renews us, week in and week out. So that's what we do. That's what we do. That is a, a, a strategy of resistance. It's a liturgy of resistance. And may it be, um, may this meal of thanksgiving be, be pre- pleasing to God and edifying to his people. Let's pray. Lord, you're not, you're not hesitant and you're not ashamed to call these people us sinners, to your table to fellowship with us, to to have communion with us, to be in our midst and to renew our hearts. God, would you do that now? Would you do that now? Not because of our goodness, not because of any works that we do that commend us to you, but because of your pure and unmerited mercy. Your pure grace, God, would you, would you nourish us with your gospel? We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.